Welcome back to another episode of a podcast written by a software engineer. I'm your host, Perry, and today we're actually talking to a really sick guest. We got Mark on the show. Mark, how are you? Good. Hi, Perry. There we go. It's always good to have some like energy at this start, just because like <laughs> a lot of stuff we talk about is really technical at the end of the day, and like people just assume that technical is like really boring, which I mean, debatably it is at the end of the day, but there's actually so many things to talk about, especially considering you have loads of experience and like history in the industry to begin with. Um but the cool thing is, for the people who don't know Mark Snyder yet, actually, like, can you give us a brief description of what you're doing nowadays and like, who is Mark Snyder? Sure, sure. Um, so my, I've been developing software for about 20 years now. Um, I started out, um, like everybody else, just, just kind of going through the learning process. Um, and I, I really, you know, I've, I've got a, I think I've got a, a little bit of an interesting perspective because my background isn't solely in product. I've, I've worked for some some different types of companies. And I, I've also done some independent contracting. So I guess I'd start with, you know, who I am. I, you know, I'm a father. I've got three, three young boys at home, which I, I'm, I'm super excited to play Minecraft with and just watch them grow. And they, they take up a, a, a lot of my passion and, and my, my time. And I'm, and I'm really excited to, to have them. Um, so that's kind of part of my life, but my other, the other part of my life is just has always been technology. I grew up, you know, from a very early age, um, being interested in technology. My, my father gave me a uh, Commodore sixty four when I was pretty young, which um, also shows how old I am. But uh, I was able to kind of learn how to program and and do certain things on that computer. And I I knew from a very early age that I I just loved technology. And I think part of the reason I loved it was. You, you get the ability to, to express your creativity, but you get to share that and create things that other people can experience. And I looked at things like video games and software products and things like that. And all of those produce an experience and hopefully some value for people. And I just really, I really liked doing that. I, I liked writing code, knowing that somebody would be leveraging, you know, the product from that. So, so my background is, you know, I've worked for a, a variety of different companies, which I, I can kind of talk through here. Um, but just, you know, Technology, you know, I started in kind of doing some networking and then really got into programming more. And then at this point in my career, I'm, you know, full on, um, I'd call myself a developer, although I lead teams now. Um, but my passion is always going to be and really always has been looking back, just writing code and building, building things. Yeah, I really like that, actually, because one of the things about writing code, the way I could describe it is ageless, timeless. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, not sometimes exactly. that's a bad thing too, right? Yeah, <laughs> sometimes yeah. that codes are out forever, and you you never live it down. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not exactly true because I mean, like back in the days, like you know, a couple hundred years ago, it's not really a thing. Actually, that's a lie because sure. they would do stuff, but it's not exactly like with you know brand new technologies. It, their methods are more the technology we talk about. So uh, we can definitely dive into that in terms of like different methods of how you know software engineers work nowadays. Because obviously, with the extensive history that you have writing code, talking about code, sharing code knowledge at the end of the day. And that's something that I think is super valuable. Um, one of the cool things that he mentioned with the Commodore 64, this is kind of like the first generations of computer, but the one that is interesting is that it really does sound like you really breathe technology, right? You really, given the right tools, you really get to like expand your curiosity and knowledge. I'm saying this just because the opposite like comparison is that. Um, back then, uh, you know, younger, younger Perry, uh, we actually had a Windows 95 available to us. But yep. the thing is like, I wasn't coding anything back then, was I? I was mostly playing Diablo, like the first one on it. And it was more like, hmm, um, the, the, the idea of technology never really crossed my mind back then. So, I mean, like it was, it was kind of good that you brought up this like instinct, this like way of growing yeah. up that actually, you know, made a lot of progress to what you are today at the end. So 
really, really glad you uh, brought that up. And, and I'll add, like, coding isn't just uh, – it. You know, certainly the, the writing the code is, you know, the part of – it's part of the productive productivity piece of, of the, the, the trade that we're in. But discovering is really, honestly, the, the most important part, like being able to discover new tools, discover new methodologies, new, new ways of building technology, you know, finding – and you go back to kind of what you described with Windows 95. You were, you were in the discovery phase, and that's kind of where I was too with the Commodore 64 is learning the capabilities of the technology and what it could do and what it couldn't do. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that's a real important part of software development is, is being willing to dig in and, and understand the environment or the ecosystem that you're in, what, what it looks like and, and gain that, that expertise. And, and so I, it's not surprising to me that you kind of had that experience too, where you had the windows 95 computer and you were just kind of digging in there and learning about it. That's, you know, I, I, I equate that to, you start it, you start a job at a new company and you've got a big code base you have to learn. <laughs> you don't jump in there, just start writing code all the time. Like a lot of times you're going in there and you're learning what's, what's this code base about, what methodologies, patterns, um, interactions, you know, those types of things. What's, what's going on within this code base? And you kind of get, the, go through that, um, that detective uh, discovery phase where you're, you're learning about that. And I, I think that's, that's just kind of baked into a lot of folks who are really passionate about development is that, that um, curiosity. Yeah, absolutely agree. I like, I could definitely relate myself when you uh, talk about stuff like that. So one of the cool thing as well that you mentioned is that, um, I mean, with your, with your kids as well, you like, I feel like the influence is there, right? You, the, the way you live, you also breathe it. And I'm pretty sure that kind of like spills over to the people around you. So I'm pretty sure the kids already have like good influence in terms of this direction of understanding oh, yeah. technology and, you know, just making the most out of it. But one thing that I actually am interested uh, even more is yourself, you know, as a kid, like back then, what did it look like a lot? And like, where are you from? Were you surrounded by a lot of tech from a young age, aside from the Commodore 64 that you did mention already? You know, you know, there was a lot of video, there was video games, things like that. We played video games, but I think, um, I'll be honest with you, my, my love for technology, well, it was, it was very early. I was into electronics. So I, I would go to Radio Shack and I would get these, they called them science kits and you could, you know, build circuits and things like that. So I was involved in technology at an early age, you know, from that, that perspective as well. And what I, again, what I've always really enjoyed was you can build things. So, you know, you take, you take a variety of different circuits, put them together. And in the end you get a, you know, an AM radio, (laughs) you know, there's, there's a product, there's a, there's a thing that you can use that, that provides utility and function that comes from that. And that's the part I've always, I've always really been interested in. So I would say, you know, when I was, when I was growing up, we didn't have the internet, things like that. Um, that inter- that connectivity wasn't wasn't quite there. Um, but as I, I did get older, there we had this concept called a, a bulletin board system, which was a BBS. Um, I still I miss those because think of think of it in terms of you have a lot of little internets <laughs> and they're localized. So you would call up a local phone number, and it was basically somebody's computer answering calls, which might they might have had multiple phone lines hooked up to it. Um, and you'd call in and you'd be, you'd all be on the same platform. So you could chat, you could play games together, you could share files, things like that. And that was really kind of the precursor to the internet. Um, so we had those types of things. And I, I was certainly fascinated um, by that stuff too. But really what I, again, I, what really drew me to technology was just um, the, you know, being able to build things, create things. And so I, I once I learned that software development, you know, being able to write code, I, I actually learned 
basic first on on the Commodore 64 and and you know through reading uh, materials and things like that was able to become pretty proficient in it um, that was kind of the environment that I grew up in and so building games um, connecting connecting through those local bulletin board systems was was kind of the environment that I, I came out of I find it really interesting just because um, nowadays we touch a lot of software but inherently this this beginning really has a lot of hardware involvement oh if yeah. you know what i mean just because like well sure. obviously the machine itself and when you're talking about like building your own am radio and even just talking about like touching networking and internet and having these localized you know internet at the end of the day hardware seemed to have played such a big major part even more than today uh just because i guess from my experience like we kind of take hardware for granted we kind of take that it gets pushed the limit of hardware gets pushed every year so i really do like the fact that no matter what, at the end of the day, like software people do have a love for hardware. <laughs> well, you have to. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because hardware is is more important today than ever, but it's been abstracted. So we don't, you know, I think early on as a developer, um, maybe even a little bit before my time, you had to really understand the hardware you were coding for. Um, so for the Commodore 64, for example, you had to understand. I love reading, um, um, or there, there's a talk, I'll have to, I'll have to see if I can find it. I'll send it to you. There's a talk where they, they went through like how they were able to squeeze every piece of performance out of the Commodore 64. And it involves some really crazy stuff. Like they would, they would identify that writing a loop on the Commodore 64 because it had such a slow processor um, was too expensive. It, the, it was too many CPU cycles. So what they would actually do is they would write loops that would write code that would then be executed and that was faster, and it was able to achieve the desired effect on that CPU um, by really, it's almost like, you think about it, it's like pre-caching the instructions by writing them out ahead of time. And I, I just, I'm amazed at that type of thing because like you had to have a deep understanding of the hardware in order to really um, write the software that would that would desire or create what you were trying to create. Now we have cloud computing, things like that. So that's all been abstracted from us to some extent. We, you know, we'll write some code and we'll ship it up to, a, you know, a, some type of platform as a service or, or um, infrastructure as a service or whatever. And, you know, if it's not fast enough, we just throw more, more processing horsepower. It might be more money, but, you know, you know what I mean? We're not, we don't have to worry about those limitations quite as much. Now we're thinking more in terms of scale and, um, you know, this thing needs to handle a million requests. So we need to somehow build this in a way where it can be distributed, things like that. Our problems, I feel, have changed a little bit. Um, but definitely hardware was a was a real important factor um, back then because you just, you had limited, you didn't have distrib- distributed computing and cloud capacity and things like that. You, you were forced to work within the constraints of that particular um, piece of hardware. So um, I do miss that a little bit. I feel like there was <laughs> there was kind of a challenge associated with that. Um, but we have, again, we have new challenges, you know, that are, and honestly, probably even more complex to deal with today. So, yeah, one of the examples that I keep on, uh, I, I guess, coming up to my mind whenever you mention these limitations is that if you notice a lot of the older languages like C, uh, mm-hmm. etc., like they have a lot more emphasis in terms of performance as well, as, as you were mentioning, like in terms of how many memory allocations yeah. you give to yeah, it. Yeah, you're doing your own memory management. You know, exactly. To, to, and know. that we, a lot of us take it for granted nowadays that we don't even know it's a problem sometimes. You don't even notice it is. And um, the other, I guess the other concepts that do come up, there's the cache and also the garbage collection. That has like a big major factor on obviously how the program is going to perform at the end, depending on the language. So funny enough, these are all, I guess, like concepts that you would touch inside of like a CS degree. And I feel like that's kind of like the difference when people will ask you like, what kind of 
I guess, topic or what kind of stuff do you talk about in a CS that you wouldn't get otherwise? These kind of stuff come up, and I feel like that's mainly, I guess, influential to, to kind of give you an idea of, like, how much time somebody has spent asking these questions about the actual, like, intri- like intricate parts of certain languages. Um, but yeah, actually mentioning just like degree wise, did you did you have like a educational background that is very heavy in tech back then? Or how did that look like? Well, in order to explain that, I need to tell a little bit of a backstory here. Um, the answer, the quick answer is I, I do not actually have a degree. And that's that's something I honestly feel like was maybe a bad decision early in my career. It gave me some skills that, you know, possibly I, I might not have have otherwise, but I, I feel having a degree would have would have helped me a lot. But here's kind of how how that shook out. Um, I started out of high school. Uh, I always knew I kind of knew I wanted to be a programmer or I wanted to be involved in technology somehow. Um, I started going to a local technical college uh, for networking. And while I was doing that, I took a job. It wasn't far from my home in a uh, photo lab, which I'll probably have to describe what that is. <laughs> for, uh, professional photographers, you know, we always see in the movies, like they're developing their own negatives in a dark room. Um, that's not actually how it works with professional photographers. They they will shoot like a photo uh, a, a photo album for a wedding or for a high school or you know a school um, pictures proms things like that. They'll shoot those pictures and then they'll take at least back in the day they would take those negatives um, from those shoots and they would send them to a, a professional lab. So I went to work for one of those professional labs and I started by running a machine where you would have a stack of negatives next to you. And they would be, they call them, they would, be, they would be what they called carded, which means they had a cardboard um, kind of frame around them, around the negative that allowed them to be at, inserted into this machine and, and printed. What's, it sounds kind of on the surface pretty basic, but it was really a complex operation. And, and the way that it worked was you'd put that negative on the machine and you would punch it into the computer and it would turn on a red light for a certain period of time, it turned on a green light for a certain period of time, and then a blue light for a certain period of time. And that period of time for each of those colors was driven by what the computer had had in, in added into its system. And obviously doing that would uh, drive how that negative was printed on that photographic paper. So the reason I'm kind of getting into this is I, I, I learned really a lot of basic concepts about manufacturing while working there. Um, I was one, I ran one machine, there was probably like 17 or 18 of these machines, and they were all different, had different capabilities, and the way that it worked is you would get a stack of negatives, and all day long, you're just putting these things in there, printing them, and there's a lot of um, stuff you had to do, making sure that there was no dust on the negative, just our, our focus was quality, and that's the reason why they would, the photographer would send the negative to the lab, was to um, make sure that it was printed properly, and that meant there was no like defects or artifacts on the on the print and that the color was correct which was like the key so what was interesting about this whole thing like going back you know back in time is i learned basic manufacturing concepts and and i i functioned on a station so printing on one of these printers i was printing at a station and there was different stations there was a station for looking at the final product and writing down potential color corrections that had to be made or determining that there was some type of flaw in that picture and sending it back, you know, to the printers, and everybody worked in these stations, and there was a flow of, of, of um, how how the negative flowed through flowed through the the lab, and I, I eventually, as I worked there over the years, I 
I would take on, I was trained in different stations and I learned different, um, different areas that I could, I could, uh, help contribute to the process in. And what I, what I started to understand is that there was a system here and that the entire thing was designed to ensure a high level and high degree of quality and everybody playing their part, um, contributed to that. The reason this is kind of important is further on in my career, I start, you know, I started learning about whip limits and Kanban boards and columns and the flow of work. And I, I always correlated it back or related it back to that, that job that I had where I, I understood that the photographer was sending the, kind of the raw idea to us via negative. And I think in terms of software development, um, you know, we get a, a really loose piece of uh, a really loose piece of functionality or requirement that the business or the product manager wants us to produce. And in my mind, that's the same thing as what that photographer was sending in, as they were sending in a, a raw negative. And what we would do is we would iteratively work on that negative. We would send it through the printer. I would print it, and somebody would take a look at it and say, "Okay, this is good, but we need to make these enhancements. We need a little bit more blue, or we need a little bit more red." Um, we need to maybe, you know, make some changes to, to how it's positioned on the card, things like that. And it was a very iterative process and it reminded me, reminds me a lot. And it, it reminds me a lot of how we do software development. We get that, we get that story. It's got the AC in there. We, we produce it, we ship it, we get feedback and then we make some changes to it. And so when I started later in my career to understand, you know, those, those agile processes, it always related back in my mind to what I had learned in, in the manufacturing world. Um, and, and kind of how that, that stuff shook out. The other thing too, I really understood well was context switching, like the problem with it, because one of the challenges that I had when I was running this, these machines is every time, um, they would change. So we had different crop sizes based on the size of the, the film. So if you had 35 millimeter, you had to run one crop. If you had 120, you had to run another. Every time they changed that and they sent me a different type, I had to recalibrate the entire machine and I had to pull out pieces and I had to um, really set it up. And, and, and it took me usually about 30 minutes to recalibrate that machine. And again, I look back to developers, like asking them to context switch is really the same thing. You give them a piece of work and when they change it out or when you change it out, you say, well, stop working on that thing and go do this thing. You know, there's a, there's a process that they have to go through that um, causes them to really have to recalibrate in, in their minds and kind of re get back up and running on the thing that they were working on. So like it just, it was able to take a lot of stuff out of, out of that experience. But anyway, so back to my kind of my story here, I, I was working there for a while and I I'd realized I, I'm really into computers. I want to do stuff with the computers. I was going to technical school. Um, and I told the general manager, Hey, you know, is there anything I could do here that, that involves working on um, some type of technology? And she said, well, not right now, but we'll keep you in mind. So at some point I, I finally decided, well, this isn't, I, I'd like to, I just, I'm passionate about this stuff. I want to do it full time. So I went and worked for uh, a while with an internet service provider as a support technician and just took phone calls. I mean, I did that for some time. And eventually this company called me back and said, Hey Mark, you know, um, we know you want to do computers. You were a really hard worker, come back and we have something for you. So I went in and um, I talked to them and it was really cool. It was perfect timing because the opportunity that they provided me with was um, they were they were launching a new online back then it was online because the internet was around at that point online process for photographers to submit 
digital photos and and kind of interact with the lab online. And this is something that was really new. Most labs were just getting into it. And they said, look, we need somebody to run that and figure that out. I was like, cool, this is exactly what I'm looking for. So I, I went back over there in, in, in this new role. And what I realized is that the level of automation with digital was, wasn't there where it was with optical. And I realized a lot of this needs to be um, automated. And so I started writing software. Like I, I wrote, I, I got some image libraries and uh, some, I was building stuff on Linux back then, brought in, a, I think it was Image Magic or something like that. I started writing different programs that would help automate the workflow within the lab with the goal of trying to create a similar type of automation that I had seen with the, we called it optical side of things. And that's where I really was able to start coding professionally. And it was, it was cool because like nobody was telling me, here's what you need to build. I was just kind of like, I had that goal in mind. I said, I want to make this, this lab automated and streamlined. So I'm going to just start building the tools that they need to do that. And it was, it was a great opportunity. Anyway, so long story short, I, I got so in, encompassed in that and, and focused on that, that I stopped going to school at that time. Um, and then I never really went back and picked it up because I was, you know, every day I was writing code and I was building things and it just, you know, I, I didn't go back. Honestly, that was a bit of a disadvantage to me later on in my career um, because I think there's a lot of principles and, and things that I, I, school would have, a CS degree would have armed me for and probably maybe uh, made my life a little bit easier. But that's just kind of, you know, how it shook out for me. I think there's actually so many good points that you brought up in this I guess really good story just because like if we if we just even talk back about CS back then I don't even think there was like an official like degree I guess with CS I feel like that was more like a newer thing that it's the trend is already like very popular nowadays I don't know if there was the direct exact equivalent of computer science at X university I don't even remember to be honest with you it may or may not have existed I, I'm sure there was something close to it if, if it didn't exist um, my, the hardest part I had was a lot of even even in the technical college, a lot of the things I was struggling with is it felt like at least the school I was in was a little bit outdated. And they were talking about, you know, mainframes and things like that. And I was like, well, you know, mainframes are still a thing, but most development is now being done in Windows. And like, where's the Windows development and, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I, they were there. It was, you know, it was a thing back then. But it, I just personally, you know, struggled with it because I just I learned better through through hands on practical like. You know, here's here's something we want to build. Go figure out how to build it, type of thing. Yeah, funny enough, I could definitely relate to it because even um, well, I come from somebody who actually went to university for a comp sci degree, uh, which, I mean, just for the record, doesn't make you like a hundred percent ahead just because you have a CS degree. At the end of the day, I've met so many engineers out there who don't have a CS engine, uh, CS degree, sorry, and they're far exceedingly better engineers than the average. So. I think that's like, you know, it's something, but it doesn't really paint the whole picture. Just because the, I guess one of the great examples that you just really mentioned was that the passion really trumps the actual technical educational background at the end of the day. Just because, I mean, from what we actually learned so far is that having this understanding of what you're doing and what it could lead to is so important on top mm -hmm. of the fact that you actually reached out. So that, and that's not something that they teach you in school, right? Like nobody asks you to ask the manager back then to, to be like, hey, let me know if there's anything interesting related yeah. to this part. So these are the kind of stuff that, you know, it, it's good that you mentioned it because that kind of gives an idea of not what you learned in school, but the person that you are at the end of the day. And I think it's to everybody's advantage to really have this mindset of ask, just ask. Nobody's going to lose anything from asking at the end of the day. It's the same thing as if you if you didn't ask. It's the same thing as if you oh, know, yeah. nothing happened. 
you know, in the bigger picture. So one of the things that um, I do want to point out is that when you're saying that, like, maybe back then if you did a CS degree, you would have done better in this thing. I think, like, the the outcomes far outweigh nowadays the decision that you made back then. Just because if if you stuck with the degree, maybe you would have missed on all these other opportunities that really built to what sure. you are doing today. So, Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I, I I feel that there was a ton of benefit to, you know, be good at honestly just throwing yourself in and like going in blind a little bit. And, and I, with that said, I've, as I've kind of grown up in, in my career here, I've also realized that there's a lot of value in doing some research and, and having some level of expertise before there, there's a balance. I think being unafraid to pursue something is important. Like, and it's hard, like you, you look at something you don't know, or you don't understand, and there's other people that do it. And it's difficult to, to feel or to kind of push yourself to just jump into that. But I, going back to what you said, if it's something you're passionate about, if it's something you care, you care about, first of all, do it your own way. Like if, if you're the type of person where you want to research something and you want to know everything about that particular topic before you jump in, that's, Hey, that's you. That's how you're wired. Um, do that. If you're the type of person where you want to test the waters and you just want to get in there and get your hands dirty, do that. You know, it's, don't be afraid to take whatever approach you feel comfortable with, but do under, try to understand your passions. And like you said, do take those steps to like, you know, reach out, talk to people, tell people what you want to do. I don't think there's many bosses out there that would look down on somebody for saying like, Hey, you know, this is what I want to do. And if you have an opportunity for me to contribute value to the company in this way, um, let me know. How, I, why would you look bad at that on that I, or down on that? I, I think um, that's somebody expressing an interest to be part of the organization and um, just in a way that they feel they can be more productive. So you're, you're right. That's that's a real important thing for especially people um, just get kind of getting into the career to understand. With that said, you may, you know, you may be told, no, I was, you know, she said, no, we don't have anything for you now. But later on, it came back and it paid off. So. Yeah. And for the better, we could definitely agree on that. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the cool things is that uh, the other part of when people mention, I guess, like these CS degrees or these degrees in technology, like a lot of times, well, I guess from my experience, they're very theoretical. So a lot of stuff that we were talking about is very conceptual, like, um, Obviously, how how functional programming languages work, how currying works, like stuff like that. Um, but the thing is, even just reflecting on what you've lived through is when you're talking about very hands-on experience, that is so much more valuable. And I think like modern, I guess, programs are very aware of that. And that's why they try to incorporate more like whether mm -hmm. it's a study or a work like mandatory semester, like they really try to put this hands-on feel to it because... I think from from even my experience, the moment I actually got more hands on, you could clearly see this like inflection point of like tech knowledge and software knowledge that really stuck with me. So I guess yeah. hands on knowledge, I'll 100% recommend it to anybody. I think that's definitely a bigger chunk of, I guess, what made me and seems like what made you at the end of the day. That's a great point. I think that is one of the advantages of the CS degree, too, is you get the opportunity to interact with other people who are also learning. You know, I it's funny because as I talk to interns and and junior developers that are they're kind of coming out of the um, out of the program, you know, when I, I ask them to kind of reminisce and go back and tell me about things that they learned and, and that they've done, they a lot of times gravitate towards those projects that they've worked on with other people. And, you know, you, you go through all these all, all of this curriculum and you're learning all these things, but the things you really remember are the, are the times when you were building something with other people. And that's, you know, that's a that's a big thing that I've learned in my career is building things with other people is probably the most important thing 
you can do as far as career development um, because that's where you gain a perspective from others. Um, you really do learn. You learn both because you're hearing those, those other, other perspectives, but you're also exercising kind of your skills at the same time. And it's just, it's a, it's a really cool thing. And I think it's easier to do that in a, you know, in a, in an environment like a, like a, like an act, something, an academic um, scenario, because you have a lot of other, you have a larger pool of people to work with who are kind of at your level. Yeah, definitely. And um, one of the cool things, I mean, we could talk about CS degrees all day long, honestly, the thing, the lesson at the end of the day here is that like, whether you have or don't have a CS degree, like, you can become so successful or like very content with what you do at the end of the day involving with technology if you just ask the questions and follow really what you're interested about. So um, mm -hmm. that's something that I guess we could all learn about. And me still today, I still learn from that. We can all learn from that. <laughs> and one of the cool thing is uh, when you were talking about, I mean, this really, I don't know, it stuck to my mind for a second. When you're saying you spent 30 minutes recalibrating the, the machines every time. <laughs> I mean, looking back from, you know, the solution here was that you would have saved settings, right? Like if you knew the setting would be this well, one, then you'd have different no, settings. No, actually, yeah, that's that's a great, great question. The solution was actually, and this is what, what we did, you didn't, you didn't constantly context switch. You minimized that. So what you did is you batched the work up. You put all of the... You know, you had different film sizes, so you, you would always do all of the different film sizes together. So you would do one big box of 35 millimeter, and then when you're done with that, then you go through the context switch, and then you do the next big box. And that was weird sometimes because you'd have a you would have customers that would actually send um, that would shoot in multiple formats. So they'd shoot some of their photos in 120 and some of it in 35 millimeter. And what you had to do is actually split their orders up. Um, and then and then process them that way and then put them back together at the end, which was turned out to be far more efficient because you you limited the number of context switches. And again, going back to kind of how software development works, you know, it's a, you know one thing to consider is you know say you're say you have a project and it requires a bunch of work on a service, and you know you have say six stories that involve changes to the, to some core service. You might want to consider bundling that together and. Not as one story, but flowing that through the board altogether so that, you know, the team can just kind of stay focused on that service and just like really kind of get in the groove on that thing, knock all that work out and then move on to the next. Um, doesn't always apply, you know, but those are the types of things that I did learn. I think the key there was really that context switch. Um, throughout my entire development career, I've always been really sensitive to context switching, I, even on a personal level. Um, I try to avoid it as much as possible because I feel like if, if you're constantly shifting gears, you're wasting a lot of time and you're just you're, you're potentially not going to be doing good, solid work. It's not going to be quality work. Oh, yeah. I think I think every engineer on top of their head, like they hate overhead. Anytime you could like minimize overhead, this is the obsession, which is why we end up being really geeky and nerdy about stuff. It's because we want to minimize this overhead at the end of yeah. the day. Yeah, we're optimizers. We, we like to do things in optimal ways. It's part of engineering. And the cool thing is, um, yeah, so you're mentioning, like, basically, you know, like, your first professional job at writing code at the end of the day is really in this awesome industry of, like, photography at the end of the day, where you got to, what language were you actually coding in at that time? I was doing um, mostly C, I think. Um, I was actually doing a little bit of PHP for their website, because um, we built, like, an online portal for them so that customers could go see, like, the status of their orders and things like that, which which was I was really proud of. Um, I ended up actually building... Um, another system that allowed the photographers to upload their digital images and would then 
allow them to crop them online and stuff like that. We did that in Java. It was actually a Java applet. I'm kind of embarrassed to say that, but we built a Java applet because we didn't have, you know, JavaScript wasn't real. It was there, but it wasn't optimized. So you didn't have, you know, like you didn't have Chrome V8 where it was, you know, extremely efficient and things like that. So we had to build Java applets to do those types of things. Um, we did some PHP, C, I think I actually had to write in a, um, proprietary language that Kodak had created for their, for their, um, their platform. Cause they, they built a lot of the technology that the lab started using, um, to manage workflow and things like that. So, which that, that was very C like, so it was mostly a lot of that lower level stuff. Um, just because again, you know, the hardware wasn't quite there. We didn't have cloud, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think you really try to make the best of all the tools that you're given at that time. Same thing for us nowadays. I, yeah, we have all these tools that, like, we comparatively to back then, obviously, we take a lot of stuff for granted that they're so much more powerful. But if you look at this kind of timeline that maybe in 10, 20 years, there's going to be even more greater stuff. And then we look back at, hey, we used to use JavaScript back then. Like, yeah. Yeah. There's, <laughs> there's always this, like, evolution of technology. But it's really good to hear from you that, like, even back then, like, the... Uh, commitment and the uh, level expertise being using C and PHP and all these technologies like it is still exposed today and I really do think people do appreciate knowing that you can learn about Java you can learn about how impactful they've been to I guess any industry at the end of the day back then it was just depends on how you use it so yeah and it's all still around which is amazing (laughs) people are still doing stuff with it so Speaking of different industry, actually, you didn't only work in the photography industry, actually. You really touched on different kind of, like, organizations and stuff. Did you end up staying a long time at the photography uh, position, or did you actually end up uh, using your software skills and developing other stuff? Yeah, I so I was there for a few years um, and then decided to move on, and I I really bounced around quite a bit. I... From there, I went and worked uh, for a while at a bank as kind of a in a kind of a product analyst role, which was really interesting. I didn't do a lot of coding there, but it kind of taught me some of the necessary skills to kind of understand what you know how to align business and technology with business requirements and and things like that. So that was good. I did that for a while. I worked at um, uh, really back then. I then worked one of the cool jobs that I had was one of the first. I would say it's one of the early SaaS companies. It was it was a company called MortgageBot. I think they're called Finestra right now. They built online. Um, mortgage application uh an online mortgage application system for for banks and what was really cool about that experience and i were i worked there as um i think it was just just a normal software developer there it exposed me to this concept that you can create an application that can serve multiple customers but it's one single application um and i i was like this is cool i you can build something that still can be customized and still can offer option varying options and features to a customer but it's one code base. And I was like, this is the coolest thing I've seen in a long time. And it introduced me to this concept of software as a service. Um, and so I learned a lot about different, you know, feature toggles. And um, I learned about how to build um, functionality in a way where it was flexible enough to, to facilitate different types of customer requests. One, one example of that is they had a really complex system for how to de- um, determine which questions were displayed on a mortgage application and it was super powerful like they could you know customers could say i'd like to have this series of questions and when they asked it was almost like the modern day form builders you know now nowadays you can just go buy a product that does this but back then you know they were they were pretty pretty much visionaries and how they did that kind of stuff um but it was really cool because it, it it exposed me to that concept and then it also kind of um showed me how to work a little bit more with the team because prior to that i'd been really working on either really small teams or 
or kind of by myself. When I was at RISR, I was like the only programmer there at the photo lab. Um, but at, once I, I, I ended up at MortgageBot, I really started to learn like, okay, this is how teams can work together and build things. And I started to understand that dynamic. Agile, I think at that time was becoming pretty prominent, but they, they were still kind of in the transition. So they were trying to understand how to utilize it. It was cool to watch them go through that process as well. Um, you know, taking large features and breaking them up into smaller features. The other thing that was cool about that situation too, was, um, there was a, there was a decent amount of tech that already, um, they had, they had things that had been written in some older technology and they were trying to move fast and be competitive and stay ahead of their, you know, the other folks that were trying to do that stuff. And, you know, they were running into a lot of this tech debt stuff. So they were constantly challenged with, you know, Hey, we've got to rewrite this big, big complicated, and this is finance, this is mortgage applications. So there's some really complex stuff in there. And they were in the position where like, we got to rewrite this thing now because we need to like do more with it. And it's so hard to do things with this. So just kind of living through that was a really cool experience and, and gave me really my first taste of what product, you know, product development looks like, which is a whole different animal than, you know, I'd say enterprise or, or, or kind of like business, um, initiative supporting type of software development product development is a very different type of development and requires more speed um requires more consistent progress you know those types of things and i, I was I, I was like this is really cool it was it was it was eye-opening yeah even that space that mortgage space like it's multi-billion dollar industry even today there's so many products revolve into yeah. it and that and when you're saying it's very sensitive like any kind of factor could influence, you know, how, how you build stuff at the end of the day. And if your code has like oh, leaky absolutely. bugs, then you're, you're kind of in a bit of a trouble at the end of the day. But well, yeah, their, their big challenge is regulatory. And I, I've, I've worked at a couple of different companies that, that deal with finance and regulatory is huge because the government, um, the federal government can, can put restrictions in place for things. And then you as a software company have to support those because your customer's expecting that. That's one of the, you know, things you're providing to them is you know, potentially compliance with, regulatory um regulatory aspects so being a, a software development team that can quickly build something um is important because you know things are changing they're in flux all the time and you, you just have to be able to respond and, and provide the customer with with that level of functionality so that happened to me while i was there we you know the government had put some kind of policy in place and we built the technology to support it and then the government decided they weren't going to do it anymore so we, <laughs> we just turned that off you know um so yeah that was that was definitely you know Finance, especially SaaS finance companies, are really, really interesting just because of the way they have to, they have to kind of operate on on those types of things. So, yeah, and even looking at from I guess the engineers' lens, from when you're working on the engineering side, like not only do you obviously have to worry about the technical aspect to it, but as you were mentioning, like just because of all these other restraints and requirements, you end up having a lot of business knowledge and business impacts that you mm -hmm. have to adhere to. So yep. I think like just being as a software engineer is like, like yes, the focus makes sure that the code is good and like the engineering operations operations are is great. But it's also very much on your responsibility to understand the business, to understand what kind of impact that if yeah. these decisions are made, then this is the outcome of that decision. So I think that's uh, something that uh, I love that you brought up just because every day, even for me, like I do have to understand that everything I do is technical, but also very much uh, business impactful at the end of the day. Yeah, for sure. Like we're, we're, you know, we're not, people aren't necessarily paying us just to write code. They're paying us to produce something of value to other people. And that means understanding the business. The business ultimately represents that value that's being provided um, to, to um, customers or target 
you know, user base or whatever, however it works within the organization you work for. And so being able to translate that code that you're writing um, or, or have that context in your mind, like, hey, I'm building this. It needs to have a high level of quality. It needs to work. It needs to scale. It needs to do all the things that I, from an engineering perspective, um, I'm kind of responsible for overseeing. But then you you really do serve yourself well to think about what am I trying, like, what is this thing actually accomplishing? I'll, I'll say this, though, too. It's hard for us to do that unless we have good product managers. And that was another thing I experienced at, at MortgageBot was we had really good product managers. Um, they understood what the industry needed and they were great at articulating that to us and, and, um, those types of things really paid off. So like we would be building something and they, and they would say, here's why you're building it. And getting that context was, was helpful. Um, but you're right. Like you have to be willing to kind of think about those things too, because you are a player in that, in that process, you know, going back to Risser, when I was printing the negatives, um, if I was printing that negative and I saw something, you know, the negative was ripped or there was something wrong with it, you know, it was my responsibility to go back to, to the inspectors or to the manager and say, hey, there's some problems with this, this thing for this customer. You need to go back and, and contact them and let them know. Um, so, you know, being part of that team is, is definitely critical in, in understanding the business aspects of what you're building is, is definitely important. I'll, I'll double and triple emphasize on being a team, like teamwork, <laughs> being a good teammate, being yeah. like part of the whole teamwork, like triple emphasize it just because we obviously talk about software engineers a lot, but I don't think I'll be able to do my job as well without PMs and PDs and or product yeah. designers, project managers, product managers out there. So I think the synergy is super important wherever, absolutely. you know, if you get exposed to any kind of opportunity to be working with more PMs and more product designers and everybody else involved into it, please do it. That's probably one of the advice that I'll be able to, <laughs> to share with people. Yeah, well, yeah, you're, you're totally right, Perry. I think that's that comes down to kind of understanding back to what you were saying originally is your passion. Like if you're if you're if you're interested in being a generalist and you want to kind of be involved in all the different pieces, then, you you know, maybe, a, a, you know, maybe some something to think about is, you know, one of these companies where they don't have, you know, a PM as a, as a formal role or it's an internal thing and they don't, you know, they have BAs and, you know, you, you have the opportunity to kind of um, fill some of the, that role. But if you're somebody who really just wants to focus on engineering and be a really good engineer, that's great too. Like everybody's different. And in that case, then you're probably going to want to work for a company that does have strong PM um, management and um, a company that's going to really do a lot of that, figuring out what it is we need to build for you and then expecting you just to do a stellar job of actually getting it out and making it scalable and making it high quality. You know, so that's, it all comes back to just like, and it's hard, but trying to figure out what it is you want to do, where you feel your strengths are, and what strengths you want to build on and, and excel at. And another agree for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> this cool thing is um, that we, we're still discovering this journey, actually, of like you becoming, like at the beginning, very hardware focused. But then next thing you know, you're kind of blooming into this software knowledge and expertise as you go. Everybody has this kind of journey to, I guess, like, leveling yeah. up your seniority and your experience at the end of the day. So what kind of that look like? As you were working, I guess, at MortgageBot, you were came in, coming in, sorry, as a software developer. But what did that journey look like after to get into, I guess, these higher knowledgeable, more senior-looking positions? Yeah, I, I think at that time I realized, it's funny because it kind of ties back in what we were just talking about. I realized I, I am a little bit more of a generalist and I, I wanted to experience more you know, more of, of the business side of things and mortgage bot was great. They had the business side figured out and they, what they really needed was really 
like I said, top-notch engineers that could just go in there and rewrite things. And, and it just wasn't me at the time. And so I, I at that time, decided, well, I'm going to try to strike it on my own. And I've got some good relationships with people. I'm going to I'm gonna try to start my own consulting business. And so I, I, I took on a couple of customers, and I, I really just kind of set it up like, hey, you know, you've got some projects you need. I've got some time. We'll set up a, a billable, you know, hour uh, plan here, and uh, you'll hire me to work on projects for you. And I struck out. It was great. It was what I always wanted to do. It was the most stressful time of my entire life because realizing you don't have, you know, you were completely responsible for your own destiny at that point and making sure, you know, that you keep work coming in. Um, it was one of those things where I, at first it was really hard and it, I worked too much and I didn't, I didn't, uh, take enough time to, to kind of take care of myself. And I burned out pretty good in the beginning. Over time, I started to level out and I, I started to figure out kind of how it worked. And what I was able to do is build up, um, a good number of consistent clients that were able to feed me work. And I basically just wrote code for people, um, for quite some time. And I, I had a couple of really interesting clients, you know, some of them were in the marketing space, so they would need like a developer to help them with the more technical aspects of a website project. And so I had, had some customers, some really good relationships with some marketing firms that, that needed that type of expertise. Um, I worked with uh, a company that did kind of some supply management or uh, sorry, supply chain, um, management type of thing. So I, I was able to get some exposure to those types of industries when you have um, suppliers and vendors and things like that. And I was able to help them build their product. That was another software as a service business. So I was able to kind of take what I had learned over at MortgageBot and apply some of that over there as well for them. Um, I worked I worked in the healthcare space. Uh, so believe it or not, you know, um, large hospitals, um, at least at the time, they, you know, they had um, specifically the area I worked in with was, um, laboratory testing. They had some specific needs and the, the big software vendors that service them, you know, weren't fulfilling those needs. So I was able to fill in some gaps there. Um, that's a really indus- in- interesting industry right now, especially with the pandemic. They are, you know, uh, the companies, the laboratories that are going out there and providing these tests to, to help people determine if they, they have the, the um, have COVID or not are really having to get creative because it's just the volume has really increased in that space. So, but anyway, so I, I was able to do some work there. And then I also worked um, with some more companies that do finance and again, that regulatory stuff, you know, those types of things. So I, it was a really cool, it was a really cool time of my life because I, it was, I, I related to being like in the wild west. I was all over the place. I was working with a lot of different companies, getting a lot of different experience. But here is the thing is I really missed working with teams. I was, again, I was on my own. I was kind of by myself and I found that while my, you know, my, my business acumen and my, my experience grew, I, from an engineering and technology perspective, I, I wasn't growing. I wasn't learning new technologies. I was um, not, not doing well with modern, like agile was something I understood, but I didn't really know it well enough to, to, to consider myself proficient with like some of the concepts and stuff like that. And I, again, a lot of it went back to just not spending time with people and teams and other engineers. And I it really missed it after a while. So, um, so at a certain point I decided to, to kind of go back to the full-time world and work, work for a company again. And, um, that's when I, I got to Circa and that's where I work now. And, um, I, I was brought in really to lead, lead some teams and uh, kind of drive, 
you know, that the development effort. And it's a Circa is a software as a service company, and it's a product company, and so it's a it's a great opportunity to take all of those different experiences that I've kind of lived through, um, but apply it to what I care most about, and that is helping others and building these teams that you know not only are productive, but teams where people can walk in the door, engineers can walk in the door, or BAs or PMs or whoever walk in the door and actually like want to work there and, and know what it is that they need to build and grow personally, you know, both with soft skills and technical skills. Um, that's what I, I found. I cared the most. And it took going through all of this stuff to finally realize like, that's what I care most about is building these teams and being part of these teams and accomplishing goals together and creating things and just like taking it all, all the things I, I realized I cared about and pulling it all together and making it, you know, making it something that I get to, I get to do every day. And, and I'm ex- extremely excited to be in that position. Yeah. In my head this whole time, I had this uh, high school music song going on saying like, we're all in this together. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we kind of are. And I think it's, it's, once you realize that it's, it's not just, you know, you're not just doing it for, for other people. You're doing it for yourself because you just can't grow. Like you can, I've always said, you can build your own technical skills up on your own, you know, go read, go read some blogs and spend time doing it. But what you can't do is change your perspective and your thinking uh, without the opinions of other people. And you get kind of stuck into this like single mindset that you just can't get out of unless you expose yourself to other people. So some people do that by reading books and, you know, and I, that, that, that's a, that's, you know, or blogs, things like that. That's great. But for me personally, it's always required daily interaction with other people. I need to be able to talk to other people, understand what their struggles are, share my struggles, talk about technology, get, you know, have dis have disagreements, you know, that type of stuff is important um, in order to really kind of evolve yourself and, and get to that next step in your career. Oh yeah. You definitely want to expose yourself to any kind of engineers. Like we always talk about the great engineers, but also you do want to get exposed to the lesser dumb ones like me. Um, no, I would never say that Perry. Uh, I'll, because... I'll be honest with you. The, as I as I've kind of gone through my career, the the engineers that really teach me a lot are the ones that are just starting out because it's first of all it's a whole new world right now. Like what I learned back then was valuable from an experience perspective, but it's not all applicable anymore. You know, like you're you're jumping into a, a, a an ecosystem now where there's hundreds of tools to choose from. That's it's, that's a problem in itself. That's a whole new problem. And so, like, what I'm really learning from from the younger generation of, of engineers is like how to adapt to the just the compl- the sheer complexity and the fast pace of of software development now. So definitely don't sell yourself short, man. You have an amazing kind of uh, perspective and experience on this stuff, or a set of experiences on this stuff that's valuable to to people in my position. Um, and, and I've found personally that those conversations with the folks that are kind of at that level are extremely valuable. And it's part of, again, why I like being in this position is I love just talking to developers. It's my favorite thing to do. And talking to developers that, you know, are just kind of getting started is, is, is fascinating. And there's just so much to learn from it. Yeah, for sure. Obviously, I appreciate the kind words there. <laughs> I always love hearing those once in a while. One of the cool things that really, I guess, like fuels me as a software engineer for the past at least four or five years now is mostly just asking questions that it can be dumb. Like dumb questions are perfectly fun. There are no stupid yeah. questions at the end of the day. You could just ask them. And then if it's a dumb question, then yeah, you'll realize it's a dumb question and you'll just be more knowledgeable at the end. So I think that really what fuels me whenever I do anything like this, working on my job or just you know, doing these these podcasts at the end, sorry. It's just I'm genuinely curious about how other people work and you just sharing, you know, the processes back then of how imaging works. That's already super fascinating to me. 
Um, one of the other great thing that you made a great picture out of, huh, pun intended, um, is basically <laughs> <Nice>. well <done. laughs> when you're talking about full-time versus uh, being an entrepreneur, uh, being like on a contract, basically being a contractor, just because on one end, the full-time, you have a bit of stuff that is taken for granted, such as um, I guess some paid holidays is taken for granted when you're a full-time versus a contractor. Yeah. And on the other side, when you're saying like, yeah, it stresses out. If you think that full-time stresses you out, yes, like it does stress you out working full-time depending on the role and everything. Being a contractor is probably like a higher load on that because you're responsible for finding the next, you know, project that you're working on everything. So I think that's kind of like the point of view I had versus full-time versus contracting at the end of the day. For sure. Yeah, there's there's definitely, um, man, I, I could go on, you know, make this a long podcast. I could talk to you about all the complexities of being a contractor. It's, I don't want to scare anybody away from it. Cause it's not, it's not probably as bad as I'm making it sound, but there is some things you have to think about. Like, you know, healthcare is important and I have a family, you know, and that was one of the, honestly, one of the big reasons why I decided that, um, I didn't want to keep contracting was because, you know, healthcare costs for, for a family is, it's a real big challenge, but there's tax things you have to care about. Like you said, you have to you have to keep your work coming in. You have to learn how to manage scope. That was like, I'll say this. The one thing contracting did teach me, in order to survive in that industry, you had to manage scope and you had to really do agile. <laughs> and while I didn't understand the, the, um, the formal agile concepts, I understood the principles because um, I'll, I'll give you a little example. I walked in um, to one of... Uh, to a, a, a conference room for one of my customers one day and they said we have a project we want you to work on and it's a big one so I went in there and they said you know we've we've handed we've had two other contractors try to do this and it just hasn't been very successful and we would like you to give it a shot because you've done some other work for us and we, we you know we've been been happy with it and so I, I got in there and I sat down with this this group of people and they in front of me, they plopped this gigantic book down. And it was this, like, it had to be like 200 pages, I'm guessing, of screenshots and bullet points and lists and all sorts of things like that. And um, they said, we want you to build this thing. And I'm looking at it and like, um, what what exactly is this? And, you know, they nobody really fully understood what it was. And so what I eventually realized uh, I needed to do in order to get that project done and to do it well was I had to break it up into pieces and I had to say, look, I'm not going to promise you I'm going to build this whole thing. I don't even know if you need this entire thing. Let's break it up into pieces and I'll work with the manager and every week we'll take a piece of this and we'll say, Hey, do we need to do this or do we not need to do this? And we'll talk through it. We'll figure out the details and we'll build it. Anyway, long story short, um, we ended up getting it done. It took about a year, but the final product is still being used today. And that was years and years ago, and it supports a pretty large revenue stream. And I don't think I would have been successful. And it's not that I was a better engineer or anything than those other other folks were. It's just I realized very early on that I'm just not capable of building a 200-page spec for anybody. That's just not how it works. And so that's the type of stuff I, I had to just learn kind of the hard way. And I guess the reason I knew that is because I probably had built larger projects before and it failed. Um, so when you're as when you're a contractor, you really don't have those guide rails that you have in a larger company where they understand that already, you know, and they're saying like, let's break this off and build this in pieces. You're dealing with customers who just have something that they need delivered, and it's kind of up to you to to really figure out how to make that happen. With that said, if you're wired that way, and that's the type of challenge you like, then it's a good it's a potentially a good um, good thing for you to try out. Um, but if you're again, you're really just into the engineering and you just want to build really awesome, high scalable things, then you need somebody like a BA in that role or 
um, somebody with um, you know sales experience that knows like what what you can and can't do in those types of roles. So there's that type of thing. There's the taxes. There's a lot of different things. Looking back, it was an awesome time of my life, but there's a lot of trade offs, and and I think understanding those is is really important. One one of the great valuable lesson from that anecdote that you just brought up is the word pushing back. Um, just because yeah. as software yeah. engineers, like we tend to. I don't know if it's a general trend, but I've seen so many times where we just accept stuff as they are. Like if you're given a spec, you just accept what it is. Like I don't think that's beneficial in the long run of what you do as a person, but as what a you know a team does at the end of the day. I think it's on the ind- individual to know, to recognize when something is completely, do you need it, do you not need it? Is it actually worth the resource spent doing this yeah. instead of doing something else? Like this pushing back is really valuable for anybody at the end. So as as you progress in terms of like being a green software engineer, somebody who's quite young, yeah, you'll mostly accept what's being given to you as you as you work on stuff. But I think there's a point in your, I guess, career and your mindset where you realize that you have to push back on whether something that's totally. completely unrealistic or something that you you know you think it's better for the bigger picture and the bigger part of the team, which I guess is always up for discussion. Totally, hundred percent agree. I, and I think there's a finesse to pushing back. There's my mind. There's like maybe two types of pushing back. The first is what you described, where it's like, do you really need this thing? And the, the way I've done that, I've kind of worked through that is I've, I've said things like, well, how are we going to, how's the customer going to use this? Like, let's talk that through. Cause I want to make sure I understand. And it's kind of a tricky way of forcing somebody to really stop focusing on the solution itself and to start thinking about the problem that you're trying to solve. And when you get people to start thinking about problems versus solutions, you can a lot of times find that, you know, there's, there's better ways of doing things or there's some things that they don't really need um, that they, they think they need. The other thing I would suggest too, though, for pushing back, if you're looking at something and you're saying, um, you know, this isn't going to work. For example, when they dropped the book in front of me, I didn't say, well, that's stupid. I'm not going to do that. I, I came up with an alternative and a, a different solution to that. You know, like, hey, let's try doing it this way and better, this way instead. I think it'll be better and floating it that way. I think you find um, you find that you get a lot more traction by, by proposing alternatives and better solutions versus just kind of being a, a little bit of an obstructionist and saying, hey, this is not the great, a greatest way to do it. And that's hard because like, it requires like understanding the problem, <laughs> being realistic and saying like this thing that we're trying to do isn't going to work and then getting creative and saying, okay, well, I, I need, I kind of see what they want to do. So how can I come up with another solution that I think will work that they'll be happy with and that will solve their problem? And that's, that's, I think, again, where the creativity aspect of our job kind of comes to play. Yeah. And I think that's definitely the harder part of what our job is. For sure. Much harder. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other cool thing is, um, yeah, because as you, I, I guess, went through so much already, being full-time versus contracting at the end, you kind of end up building this baggage of knowledge. And I guess, like, this is part of the journey of anybody, you know, living living this tech world and living, you know, this whole experience. Um, but we could definitely talk about your current projects, your current roles, because, I mean, like, that's super impactful yeah. in terms of, you know, how everybody else looks at the world. I mean, currently, you're a director of product development at Circa, but you also have a wonderful blog called Seven Samurai that has loads of great resources on it. You also have a podcast coming up. So I think like that's so many different streams of projects going on. And I think one of the things that I guess I could ask is what exactly is a director of product development to begin with? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. Really, um, and it kind of feeds into why I started Seven Samurai too. I think making the transition from, from I'll call it technologist to somebody in a leadership position is is tricky. It's, it's, it's got its own kind of... Um, challenges associated with it, especially if you've come, come from a, you know, developer background. So my role at Circa is really to keep that team moving, help make sure that we've, we've got the right people in place, 
Um, make sure that we're focused on the right things. Make sure that our culture, I, I feel like making sure culture is considered and that, you know, developers feel safe and they feel free to, to innovate and um, share and, and learn from each other. Um, making sure that the work that they need to do is well understood because I feel like um, setting up a team for success means telling them what it is that, you know, what success looks like. And I, I think that's part of my role is being able to work with the business and work with my boss and work with um, product management and, and the other stakeholders within the organization and, and try to figure out, um, you know, what does the business need in order to accomplish their initiatives and then channel that down into the team um, in a way that makes sense to them. And that that's that's got some challenges associated with it because that means taking it and turning it in not only to requirements, um, it means considering architecture, it means considering our existing application portfolio, um, legacy technology, risks, identifying risks, dealing with support because I, I'm a big believer in making sure that support is considered as part of you know the development effort because a lot of times support requires changes to the system, things like that. So really just, I've become more of an orchestrator now of trying to keep all of that work kind of flowing and moving and removing roadblocks. Um, but I'm not actually doing the work. And that's really the challenge with making that transition from, you know, from a developer to somebody in more of a leadership position is it's really easy to just hold on to all of that technical knowledge that I've, I've obtained over the last 20 years and instead, I have to put myself in a different kind of mindset, um, one that I'm not necessarily super comfortable in all the time, which is a good thing, um, but put myself more in a mindset of how do I enable people? How do I help them? How do I hold them accountable? How do I make sure that we have the right skill sets? How do I make sure that the work is making sense and that we, we're flowing it, you know, those types of things. And just really, my goal is, and i relate it back to my work at the photo lab, making sure the entire system that the work is flowing properly and that we don't have context switching and that we don't have, you know, work bunching up in one area. Um, you know, maybe it's getting stuck in the, the, um, you know, the analysis phase, or maybe it's getting stuck in the tech design phase, or maybe it's getting stuck in this QA phase, you know, those types of things, making sure the quality is there and just really balancing all those things and trying to fine tune the system with the key being understanding that it's relationships and people that ultimately makes it work. And knowing that if the if the the developers that work at Circa uh, understand the work and are happy and are growing and, and are working with each other and learning from each other, that everything is going to work. And just you know trying to make sure that I'm not getting in the way of that and that I'm helping promote that type of culture. That's really what the role role is currently for me. And the reason I started Seven Samurai Dev is I I feel like there's a real gap out there. You know there's there's um, a lot of expertise on how to do agile. There's a lot of expertise on how to do architecture. There's a lot of expertise on all the specific technologies, how to do TDD, how to do, you know, um, those types of things, those types of things. But I don't feel there's a lot of, um, help out there for somebody who's in a, a development, um, role who wants to kind of get to that next level, wants to get into a leadership level and start helping others more influencing others. And that's, that's where I feel I can help just because I have a variety of different experiences. And um, so Seven Samurai and the podcast that I plan to launch in January is going to really focus on what are the different tools, what are different methodologies, the, the philosophies that are out there that I've both, both I've experienced and others have experienced 
to help you get into a position where you can influence others in a positive way. Cause that's what I want to do. I want to like, I'm loving, I'm loving talking to you, Perry, because I feel like I'm giving the opportunity to maybe give you some stuff and you're, you're giving me all sorts of ideas back. Um, just kind of take that to another level and just really put that out there. And so seven, seven um, I'm planning to just produce more articles that just really focus on, um, sometimes it, it may, might be technical, but more often than not, it's going to be about mindsets and philosophies that you can employ to kind of get yourself to that next level. I really do like the description that you had, I guess, for your role, because it was, it's basically the hardest challenge to have this marriage between the methodological system and the marriage between that and also the human appreciation because at the end of the day software engineers are human at the end so that balance between making sure that yeah. all of those parts work together it's definitely a hard job and you being there and really sharing your knowledge and making sure that everybody gets to enjoy their work and the impact that they've got is definitely valuable so yeah i appreciate appreciate those uh, <laughs> those responsibilities and i think the other great point that you mentioned is this kind of distancing between you and I guess some of the code base, some of the direct technological work. It's always a debate that yeah. everybody in, I guess, a lot of software engineers out there tries to think about and tries to debate. Because even for myself, like, yeah, I touch a lot of code nowadays, but is is that everybody's path? Is somebody always happy to touch it? Or is somebody not happy to not be able to contribute directly to, uh, to the code base? So I think like if we talk about these concepts, like it's very prominent between different companies to address them, especially considering how there's different paths, which is I guess yeah. one of them is the IC, which is the individual contributors, compared to the engineer manager role, which is like, you know, slightly further away from the code base. So I think these are always like questions that people ask themselves all the time. And I think like the better way of, you know, just figuring out what you yourself want to be is just talk about it, which is basically what we do nowadays is um, if I have a question about, should I go down this path? Should I go down that path? Then yeah, just ask around. Everybody has their own opinion. And I'm pretty sure you talk to a lot of the people that you work with about this kind of stuff, right? Yeah, I think you're, you're dead on. I think the, the key there is you're learning what your options are, you know, and the only way you can understand your options are to talk to other people and see kind of where they where they see themselves going and what they're doing and what their current experience and past experiences are. It's, you know, it's it's obtaining obtaining information um, from others through through those stories that they have. And that's that's the kind of thing, too, that's hard to find. You can't just go to the internet and say, hey, show me all the different experiences that people have had in the software development um, realm so that I can try to figure out what I want, how I want to craft mine to look. Like that's, Google isn't going to answer that query very well. You know, it only comes from talking to people. And I think to your point, like some people are much happier in that individual contributor role. Um, and that's great. Like we need, we need people who want to do that. Um, you know, some people want to do other things. And it's okay, you know, to kind of have your strengths, build off of your strengths and the things you're passionate about and the things you care about, and then start to understand where, here's the key is like, start to understand what your options are and where you can provide value. Because if you can marry up your passion with the ability to provide people with value, um, it's fulfilling. You can, you can make a decent living and it's something that you can do, you can do uh, long-term. It, it, it'll be hard. You still may burn out, but it's going to be a lot easier to not burn out if you've kind of found that balance and found that fit. And the, the only way to get there is network, talk to people, you know, involve yourself in, in the development community and, and the people that are out there. Yeah. And I'll definitely agree again on that. Uh, just because I guess like one of the great thing about seven samurai with the resources out there is that you do touch a lot of these topics. Like some of the topics that you do mention is, uh, just our everyday lives as software engineers, right? When we talk about standards, when we talk about how yeah. the teams work, um, even the, I guess there's a term called the two pizza team, 
where we could definitely talk about, I guess it will be for another discussion, but the resources available on Seven Samurai is definitely really relevant for these kind of discussions. Uh, when you when I was saying stand-ups, code reviews, uh, how to how to lead tech teams, those are all definitely stuff that we love talking about. Well, I'll, I'll speak for myself uh, that I love talking about. And um, I guess for somebody who, you know, uh, what kind of advice would you have somebody to to want to share these knowledges? So like in terms of, because you, you've created, you know, really good resource out there. If somebody wants to do the same, what what kind of advice would you give them? Yeah, no, I, that's, that's a great question. I think um, what I've discovered recently is if you want to create something like that, it's, it's difficult because it took me a long time to get there, but you need to find, again, what you're passionate about. And sometimes it takes just like trying some stuff out to figure that out and, and be real. Like I, so I tried, I've tried to create a couple things in the past and I, I got maybe a month or two into them and I realized, oh, I'm just really not into this. I just, you know, it, it was kind of exciting at first, but now I just don't, you know, it's not enough there. I can't get myself to think about it enough. You got to find that 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 thing that you really care about, that um, you can use to power whatever that content is, and um, sometimes it helps. I think to look back at your your history and kind of try to understand what it is you've you've done and gravitated towards and those types of things. But I think it starts with just figuring out what is the thing that it really drives you that you care about that you can wake up in the morning and say, "Yeah, I want to talk about that," and I want to tell other people about that. Um, start there and then take that and turn it into something that can help people solve their problems. Um, and gu- I guarantee if you're passionate about something, you, you can use that to help people solve problems because the reason you're passionate about it is probably solving problems for you. You know, So figure out how do I frame that and turn that into something that can help people. My goal with Seven Samurai is to try to not get too philosophical at, at a high level, but to really just, like you said, just boil it down to daily things that you can really like, do to influence your team. You know, the stand-up thing is everybody does stand-ups and you're anybody who participates in a stand-up hopefully has the opportunity to contribute and, and influence that process and talk about it and change it and make it better. You don't even have to, hopefully you don't even have to be in a leadership position. I encourage our teams. I'm a big believer in autonomous teams and um, I don't, I don't believe in dictating to a team how they should run their ceremonies and so the team should be able to like influence that themselves. And if you're part of a team, you should be able to say, hey, guys, why are we talking so much about all this stuff from yesterday? We should be talking about what we are what we need to do to push this work forward because I think that'll, you know, we'll get out of there quicker and we'll, we'll achieve our goal, which is to walk out of that meeting with a, a good sense of what we need to do for the day and just have those types of conversations and, and arm people um, with, with those, not only the topics, but just maybe some of the the you know, I'd say some of the, the value associated with doing things in a, in a certain way. Um, just trying to get people to at least think, you know, even if you go to my site and you look at some of these articles and you adamantly disagree, that's cool because you probably have some different experiences than I do. And I guarantee you, you're probably right. Um, and I haven't thought of, of those things, but I liked creating the conversation. Like, let's talk about these things and, you know, let's, let's kind of keep moving forward and improve continuously. And that's my goal for the site is just to help people start to think in, the, in that kind of um, way and also give them the confidence to, to have those conversations. Just because you're an engineer doesn't mean you can't talk about what stand-up looks like and how it functions and flows. You have a say in that. Yeah, that's really amazing. I mean, those are all super useful tips for just sharing knowledge. And at the end of the day, like, it's really selfless just because sharing is definitely one of the greater things you could do as an individual, not as a software engineer, but just as a person at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, 
And for, I guess, like, for the people that, uh, I guess, are starting their career in software engineering, like, the, the greener, the younger people that do want to keep on pushing and, you know, being more productive and being a senior and being, you know, climbing this ladder at the end of the day, what kind of general advice would you have for them, considering that they've basically just dove into it? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I believe there's a little bit right now of an overemphasis on technical skills, but I get it because I, I think you need the technical skills in order to get a job, obviously. Like it, if you can't prove that you know a particular tech stack, then you know it's going to be hard to get hired. But um, I think that's important, but I also recommend people need to think about soft skills. They need to see the value of building relationships. Like if you're early in your career, building relationships is really important. It's important even later in your career. Um, and that means talking to people, finding ways to network, pe- working with people's, uh, people that you work side by side with every day, um, you know, and that takes the form of, you know, asking questions and going out of your way, being proactive to, to really um, work with people and understand kind of their perspective on things. So relationship building is important early in your career. Um, I think another, another piece of advice I'd give you too is think about your career. Like <laughs> it's, it's hard. Um, it's easy to get focused on the technology stuff because that's like what you do on a daily basis and you got to do that. But think about your career. Like, you know, where do you want to go? Do you want to be, like you said, an individual uh, contributor or do you want to be a manager? Um, Think about the type of company you want to work for. Um, There's a lot of different, you know, companies out there and software developers are in demand. They're going to be in demand for a long time. Um, You have options. Think about the type of company you want to work for. Um, You know, those types of things. And, and that's important early in your career because you may you may have been fortunate and you landed in a in a company that's perfect for you and you're going to be there for a long time. That's awesome if that happens, but there's also a chance that maybe this isn't the right fit for you. That at some point you're not growing anymore. Um, you need to be kind of prepared to figure out what your next step is. So my advice, I think, would be don't let the technology take over. It's important. It's your it's your trade. You got to get good at it. But don't let that be your primary focus or your only focus. It probably needs to be your primary, but it shouldn't be your only focus. And spend time building your your other your other skill sets and, and thinking about where your career needs to go. That's amazing. Honestly, I really enjoyed hearing all of your advices and anecdotes and really just how, you know, it, it all sounds relatable at the end of the day. So that's super, super fun to just even hear to begin with. Um, but yeah, like where, where can people find more of your stuff? Yeah, the big the big thing is um, seven samurai and it's not spelled out seven. It's the number seven. There's a movie called Seven Samurai, created back in the '60s, and what I loved about it it's it's the um, it's a story about a group of a samurai that came together to help defend a village. And what I loved about it is it's different, a, a lot of different samurai with different personality, skill sets, things like that. So I named I kind of named it after that. We'll see how long I can get away with that. Um, but check out seven samurai That's my site. I do like you mentioned. I do plan. Um, to start putting out a podcast of my own um, in January. And that'll that'll also be launched on that site as well. And then you'll be able to listen to that on all the different platforms, uh, podcast platforms. So feel free also uh, from there, you can check out my LinkedIn profile. I'm on Twitter. Um, love to have discussions, please. If you, you know, it's, you want to talk about any of this, I would, you know, love a direct message. Just follow me and, and I'll follow you back and, and we can chat about some of this stuff. I do really enjoy talking to um, developers who are just starting out and just kind of, like I mentioned, hearing their experiences. So don't hesitate to um, to reach out and ask me questions, and I'll probably ask you some. <laughs> That's so awesome. Hey, man, Mark, thank you so much for being on the show again. Oh, it was great. I had a really fun time, and I, I really appreciate everything you're doing, Perry. You have a 
a great thing going here and, and uh, keep on going with it. I, I really enjoy what you're doing. Ah, oh, stop it. All right. Really enjoyed that. Anyways, I'll catch you guys on the next one. Take care.